All right, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to start off this morning. We're going to be, we'll turn, you can turn to Luke chapter 13, that's where we're going to be at. Continuing our study through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13, you can go ahead and start that timer back there for me if you want, uh, unless you guys want me to, I'll just go until second service starts. We won't even stop, we'll just keep going, they'll come in, okay? Yeah, so Luke chapter 13, or unless Jesus, until Jesus comes back, Yeah. But um, I want to I make a reference this morning to 1 Kings chapter 15 to kind of set the stage a little bit for what we're reading here in Luke chapter 13. And um, in Luke chapter, or in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 15, we're told um, that after Solomon, David's son, Solomon became king of Israel, that, that he gave a sacrifice, we're told, of a thousand burnt offerings on the bronze altar in the tabernacle. It's a pretty awesome thing. And, and one of the things we're told about Solomon in that passage is that he just loved God. And, and that was his motive. That was his heart for making this, this massive, wonderful offering, this sacrifice to the Lord. In light of this, we're told that God came and visited Solomon in a dream. And he came to Solomon and he said, ask and ask, whatever you ask, I'll give to you. Is, is what God was saying to Solomon, wanting to bless Solomon. And um, because Solomon desired to be a good king, we know that he was young when he took the throne, Scripture tells us. He felt inadequate to lead God's people, um, ill-equipped. And so as a desire to be a good king, this is what he asked for God to give him. He asked God to give him an understanding heart, to be able to discern between good and and evil. Isn't that a great request? You know, in matter of fact, God said, that's an awesome thing. And because you didn't ask for, for riches and wealth and fame and all this, God said, he said, I'm going to bless you with, with great wisdom. And also, I'm going to give you all these other things as well that you didn't ask for. And, and, and so Solomon was given by God wisdom. And it says, exceedingly great understanding so that Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the other men. And we know that Solomon has been characterized as the wisest man that has ever lived. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Solomon, with this God-given wisdom, wisdom <clears throat> inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this and said, it's so true, these words are so true, think about it, but he said this, he said, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. And I call our attention to these words of wisdom in light of Luke chapter 13 this morning because this, in this chapter, there's, there's, I think, a perfect example of how there is nothing new under the sun as there were two questions of thought that were, that were, um, that are two questions of thought that are questions that are still being asked today. Questions that have been asked generation after generation after generation. And, and the first question, and, and I think we can relate to these questions, and the first question was rhetorically asked by Jesus. As a matter of fact, it was a response. But he asked the question twice in verse 2 and then again in verse 4 of, of, of Luke chapter 13. And he did so in order to deal with this issue of God's justice. Specifically the question, and you'll see the familiarity of it, but the question of if God is just, 
or if God is good, same thing, right? If, if God is just, then why does he allow for bad things to happen to good or innocent people, right? That's a, that's a question that is familiar, that, that we ask. And, and the second question is found in verse 23. Listen, it's where a man came to Jesus and asked this. He said, he said are there a few who are going to be saved? And it's worded a little weird, but really what he's saying in there is this. How could a loving God keep people from heaven? Again, a, a familiar question. And I believe these two questions are questions that we, have all, we all have asked, and they're questions that others have asked us. And, and uh, for sure, I know this for myself, and I've talked to others as well, but questions that others have asked when we've tried to share our faith with them. Now, I want to point out that as Jesus addressed these questions, and this is key because lots of times Jesus doesn't answer the questions that we have in the way that we want them answered, does he? He gets right to the heart of it and answers them in the way that it needs to be answered. And when man comes to these two questions, since the beginning of time, you know, asking these questions, nothing new under the sun, we've kind of wanted a philosophical answer to those, to those questions. And Jesus does not answer in Luke chapter 13 those particular questions in a philosophical way or even a, may, a way that we may, we may want or, 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 or more expect, but, uh, might expect. But I think he answers it in the best way in regards to a personal way that challenges us to answer to, to, to apply the answers that Jesus gives to our own lives. They're not up here. They're not out here. They're right here. And that's where, where God wants to meet us with these questions today, in our lives personally. And my prayer is that our hearts would be willing to receive everything that God reveals to us this morning so that we would be willing, willing to apply these truths to our lives. So we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 9 of chapter 13. If you can look and follow along, I'll read. And it says in verse 1, it says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans. Those would be specifically the citizens around the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret in that region there. And it says, it says he told them about the Galileans, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, he said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, again, here's where the personal application, he removes it from the philosophical uh, plane down to the, to, the to the personal application. He says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will be all likewise you will all likewise perish. Or, or another, another example, or those 18 on whom the, the Tower Asylum fell and, and killed them. In other words, do you suppose that they were worse sinners as well, just like the ones of the Galileans who were murdered by Pilate? Or those, he said again in verse 4, those 18 on whom the Tower of Asylum fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you, will, uh, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse six, he also spoke a parable. This parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig up around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. You can cut it down. All right, we'll stop there. We're going we're gonna to make it all the way through, I think, like verse uh, 23, something like that today. We'll see where far we get. But, but these, first, these first nine verses, um, let's look at them in, in the context of where we were at. Because when we consider where we've been studying, when we consider last week's message or last week's study, actually last couple weeks study through chapter 12, because it took us two weeks to get through it, but when we consider what, what we, where we have been and where we're going, we know that these crowds of people that Jesus is with now, we know that the crowds of people whom Jesus was speaking with in this chapter, they're the same ones who had just heard Jesus talk about being prepared for eternity. So that's setting the stage. That gives us the mind for, for where we're going. It, 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 their mind is set on eternity. And, and it was this discussion their minds being set on eternity, this discussion about eternal things, according to verse 1, that caused some in the crowd to bring up Pilate, specifically something that Pilate had done. How he, the Roman governor over Judea, <coughs> had killed some of the Jewish people. Specifically, it says, some of the Galileans who had come to Jerusalem in order to offer up their sacrifices at the temple. Now, you can search the Bible. Um, I'll let you know right now that the Bible doesn't go into any of the details about this tragic event, but secular history does. And there's a, there's a Jewish historian, um, Josephus, who writes about this event. And from his writing, we know that Pilate had acquisition money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct, and the word acquisition is used lightly there. He demanded it, that, that, that money be taken from the temple in order to build a new Roman aqueduct. And, and as you can imagine, this prompted widespread protests by the Jewish people who hated the Romans, who were under Roman rule, that Pilate would come and take money from this, from this holy place, money that was to be used for the, for the upkeep of the temple and for the provision of the priests, God's money, holy money, and so the Jewish people, that they, 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 there was these widespread protests throughout Jerusalem. But however, we know that, that Pilate, <coughs> he was not the type of Roman governor who tolerated any act of rebellion. So he retaliated. And Josephus, Josephus tells us that he was able to stop the protests and, and disperse the protesters by putting his soldiers in civilian clothes and mixing them within the crowds of the protesters, those who were gathered there at the temple in Jerusalem protesting, and he gave them the orders to use the weapons that they had concealed in their garments and, and to use them to kill some of the unarmed and un, 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 innocent protesters. And, and it was this tragedy that the people here in verse 1 had brought to Jesus' attention. Now, we're not told why it was that some, as it says here, some in the crown had told Jesus about what had Pilate done. But we need to keep in mind, contextually as we flow through this chapter, we must keep in mind that the religious leaders who hated Jesus were still in the crowds, Right? They were still in these crowds of people who were following Jesus at this time. And since Jesus was going to Jerusalem, we know that anything about, about what he might say about Pilate was sure to get there before him. 
And, if Jesus, and so if Jesus defended the laws of the Jews and accused Pilate for what he had done, then Jesus would be in trouble with the Romans, right? And the Jewish leaders would then have a good excuse, a good reason then to have Jesus arrested when he got to Jerusalem. But on the other hand, if Jesus ignored the issue, the crowds might accuse him of being for Rome, pro-Roman, and disloyal to his own people. So it's likely that this information perhaps was given in an attempt to cause Jesus some trouble. But Jesus, who always took every opportunity to teach the truth, elevated this issue to the higher place and avoided the politics of the situation completely. And instead of discussing Pilate's sins, he dealt with the sins of the people who were questioning him. And in doing so, he answered their question by asking a question and made it clear that, listen, this is, this is the whole emphasis of what he's, he's speaking to us. He's made it clear that human tragedies are not always divine punishments. Human tragedies are not always divine punishments. And, th- and that's wrong, and that is wrong for us to play God and pass judgment by assuming or implying that they are. As a matter of fact, do you remember one of our most recent tragedies, a great tragedy in our country, it's 9-11, right, with the, the airplanes that crashed into the Twin Towers. There were, there were many godly men who I, who I respected that came on the TV and said, oh, this is God's judgment on America. I totally disagree with that. I believe that we're living in an age of grace where God is extending grace and mercy to his people. The Bible says it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Is there coming a day when God's judgment will come? Absolutely. But it's not today. And when we step into that role and say these kinds of things, as these men were kind of implying as Jesus was dispelling their implications, what we see is that it's wrong for us to do that because we're ultimately playing God. We're saying that we know the mind of God, the heart of God, and that was the reason why that happened. And we're passing judgment by assuming or applying that the tragic thing that has happened, either, or either societally or to a person's life individually, was somehow because they were in sin. So when Jesus answered them in verse 2, he questioned them by asking if they believed that those who were killed were worse sinners than anyone else. In other words, did they believe that God had singled out these Galileans in order to judge them and give them what they deserved, right? That's kind of the implication. And to further illustrate this, Jesus made a point of his own by referring use an illustration of his own, excuse me, by referring to another tragic incident there in verse 4, something that everybody would have known about the time, a time when the tower in Siloam, near the pools of Siloam in Jerusalem, where it had fallen down and killed 18 people. And you think about that, it, the, the, the pools of Siloam, who were there lining the pools? Those who were, who were sick, those who were lame, in need of healing, And in, in referencing this strategy, Jesus had asked again if they believed that those who were killed by the tower were somehow worse than all the others who were in Jerusalem at the time. And that was even a step further because a lot of people believed that if you had an infirmity or you were paralyzed or you were sick, it was because there was sin in your life. You must be a sinner. And in both these instances, Jesus asked, asked, answered the question he had asked and said in verse 3, and then again in verse 5, he said distinctly, no, that these things did not happen because these people were worse sinners. 
And by this, Jesus was dismissing the thought that when a tragic thing happens, whether it's now the two instances are specific that Jesus referred to here, because he brings out the first part is that that when when a tragic thing happens, either by the hand of a human like Pilate upon the Galileans, or or by a quote unquote natural catastrophe like the, 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 the tower falling over, it does not mean that God has somehow executed his judgment on the lives of those people, or that he has executed justice. In fact, Jesus enforced this point by saying to the people in these two verses that unless they repented, they would perish as well, and to the application, to the heart of the issue. Unless they repented, they would perish well, meaning that because of their sins, they were, if, if this was true, if the, if the implication was true, then, then because of their sins, they were just as deserving as God's judgment to those who had died. In light of this, we see that Jesus took this philosophical thought, and like I said, and he elevated and made it personal. Made it personal. In doing so, he was showing them that if they thought that these tragedies were God's judgments on sinners, then, then they should be asking this question, and us too, when we find ourselves in that same place, should be asking this question, why am I, who is also a sinner, then still alive? Why am I, who is also a sinner, still alive? And this principle that Jesus was teaching is so important for us to understand because when we, when we observe a tragedy in lives of others or, or when we, we experience a tragedy in our own life, the question should not be, why did this happen to me? Or even, what, what did I or what did they do to deserve this? Because that's often the place that we go to, right? God's mad at me. God's judging me. They're getting what they deserve. <laughs> you know, that's not the question, the real question should be, why do these things not happen more often? That should be the real question. You see, it's not an issue of why do bad things happen to good people, because the reality is that none of us are good and we all deserve to be judged by God. And when we realize this, we should really be asking, why is it that anything good happens to us who are bad? We should be more amazed at the good things that happen than about the bad things that happen. Because the fact of the matter is we are all, our, we are all sinners who rebel against God, are we not? And if, if, we, if we all got what we deserved, then all of us would be tragically wiped off of the face of the earth. So when we realize this, we understand that it's only, here's, here's the key, because when we realize this, then we understand that it's only because of God's mercy and because of God's pet compassion that we're not condemned also to some kind of tragic demise. Remember, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 23 and 20, 22 and 23, it really reminds us of this nature of God and says this, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. In other words, we deserve it, but through his mercies, we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In light of this, I believe we spend, in light of this, I believe we spend, at least I do. Maybe you don't, I do. I think we're all the same. 
uh, and, and these guys here as well that we're reading about. But I believe we spend way too much time complaining about the things that don't work out the way we think they should or the way that we want. Too much effort focusing on that, on, 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 on things that don't work out the way that we think they should or the way that we want when we should be marveling over the fact of how good and how gracious and how merciful and how forgiving God is to sinners like us. And be living with hearts of gratitude for any and every good or blessed thing that God brings to our lives, which are all undeserved. Marveling over that. And sometimes we do that in other people's lives. I cannot believe God is blessing that person. Do you know? Now when Jesus said, listen, when Jesus said this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish At the end of verse 5, follow this. He was indirectly pointing out how every human being is currently receiving God's mercy and compassion. Everyone who is alive today. And that there is coming a time, but here's the other part. Here's the other side of it. He also pointed out that there is coming a time when every human being will stand before God and will be judged. And this truth takes the personal aspect of what Jesus is saying ultimately to a very sobering place, does it not? And the parable of the fig tree, which we read about here in verses 6 through 9, which is told without a conclusion. Don't you want to know what happened to the fig tree? I do. I mean, it's like, where's, what happens? But this parable of the fig tree in verses 6 through 9, which is told without the conclusion, since the fig tree remains the, the, the fate of the fig tree remains unknown. It, 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 makes even, it makes what Jesus is saying here for us even more personal as it has really two avenues of application for us to follow with the thought that Jesus just gave. The first is specifically for the nation of Israel. This is a, this is a, this is a parable that applies to the nation of Israel. And, and then the other avenue of application is for us individually. In, 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 in the umbrella aspect of it refers to the kingdom of God. That's what's, that's what's being spoken of here, and, and we'll get to it. But the words that Jesus had just spoken are connected to this parable um, and, and, and the fact that the, the, the keeper of the vineyard was, was, was patient with the fruitless fig tree. And, and this illustration is intended to be a, a picture of God's patience, which then brings forth God's mercy, God's compassion, this long-suffering nature of, of, of God. In that, first, how it had been shown to the Hebrew people in this moment, in that time, in that just like the fig tree had been tended to for three years in this parable and had yet not produced any fruit, so it was with the nation of Israel at this very moment who had Jesus, the Son of God, ministering to them in the flesh for three years at this point. And as the whole, as a whole, the nation of Israel had yet to produce any fruit. Consequently, they were on the verge of, of being judged. That's what we see here. But like the fig tree that was given additional care, man, God's so long-suffering. But like the fig tree that was given additional care in time to produce fruit, so too was the nation of Israel given additional care. And more time to produce fruit as we see how God, who is long-suffering, waited initially 
an additional 40 years before any kind of judgment came. And we know that the, the first judgment came, which, which brought forth the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And with that, the dismembering of the nation, which lasted until 1948. And we know that Israel still is being ministered to, that the roots are still being dug up as the church is being used to bring forth jealousy, to lead them into salvation. Now, the application for the individual is seen for us by the fact that we never learned the fate of the fig tree in the parable. And in that, we see personal application. In other words, we're never told if the tree produced fruit and if it was spared or if it was cut down. So when we consider the parable of the fig tree as it applies to our own lives, we, we, we see that we really shouldn't be asking what happened to the fig tree. We need to be asking if we are bearing fruit and what is our end going to be? It's left open-ended in order to draw question in our own hearts and mind. Are we bearing fruit? What is our end going to be? The point is God is gracious and he is long-suffering to all of us even though we don't deserve it, right? And he, he tells us and, and he does, God does all kinds of things to encourage us to repent. God does all kinds of things to encourage us to repent and to, and to bear fruit. But you know what? We must respond. That's what the Bible tells us. Our response is to respond. Our responsibility is to respond to the work that God's doing in our lives. So as God digs down into our heart and exposes the the root of our sin, we should ask this, are we humbling ourselves? Or are we hardening our heart? Are we humbling ourselves or are we hardening our heart? Are we repenting of our sins and are we receiving what he has provided so that the spiritual fruit could be found? Because if we receive, then God fertilizes and then it brings forth the result that he wants. And the Bible teaches us when we talk about spiritual fruit, I'm just going to make a couple of references. It tells us that spiritual fruit comes in many forms. And in Hebrews chapter 3, excuse me, 13 verse 15, we're told first of all that spiritual fruit is giving thanks to his name, to God, a heart of thankfulness, a heart of gratefulness that is reflected in praise. That's spiritual fruit. According to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, spiritual fruit can be giving monetary gifts, whether it's tithes or offerings or alms. And according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, a, spirit, a spiritual fruit is loving people. That's a big one, don't you think? And according to Romans chapter 1, verse 13, spiritual fruit is winning souls. Are these things manifested in your life? When God walks by, does he see him? Can he pick these things from your life? And in James chapter 3, verse 18, it says that spiritual fruit is doing the works of righteousness. You know what that means? It means doing the right thing. It goes back to what we read last week. The good servant is the one who knows the will of God and does it. That's the right thing. And spiritual fruit is doing works of righteousness. In light of this, we need to ask ourselves, are we bearing fruit? Are we bearing the fruit that God is looking for, or does he walk away empty-handed each time he passes by? So the parable of the fig tree, if you're taking notes, I want to summarize it, really reveals four important lessons. The first is this, that uselessness invites disaster. Is that not true? Uselessness invites disaster. 
How about this? The second thing that we learn from the lesson of the fig tree. If, someone, if something only takes, it cannot survive. If something is only taking, it cannot survive. Life is found in giving, in production. How about this? God gives second chances. Amen. Parable of the fig tree teaches us that God gives second chances. But the parable of the fig tree also teaches this, that there is always a final chance. There's always a final chance. With that, let's read on to verse 10. It says, now, now when he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, again, a Sabbath day thing, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, and she was bent over and, and could no way raise herself up. When Jesus, but when Jesus saw her, he called to her, or he called, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But don't be this guy. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Everybody go, oh. <laughs> and, he said, and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought so ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham who Satan had bound think of it for 18 years to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he had said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, now the point of Jesus purposely or intentionally healing this woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years on the Sabbath, I will say this. It is, it is the exact same purpose as the pre -two, previous two accounts that Luke has recorded for us, which we've studied up to this point. So I want to say, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on these particular verses, but I do want to get to one thought. So when Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath, it was done intentionally to once again demonstrate how God, who loves us, is concerned about our needs. Our temporal needs, the earthly needs, the things right now, he cares about them. We're of a value to him, right? But also to show us that we need to be concerned for the needs of others. That's what we see here as well. Not only is God concerned about our needs as we see this, but we see that we should be concerned for the needs of others. As we look at the, the, the Pharisee, the, the ruler of the synagogue who was not, sadly the self-righteous leader had, had placed... And not just him, but all of them had placed heavy burdens on the people we know with the rules and regulations. And because of these rules and regulations, it had somehow become wrong, a wrong thing to help a person who was need in need on the day that God set aside to honor him. By helping this woman, Jesus was honoring God because healing her was a demonstration of God's love for her. Do you see that? And Jesus pointed out the hypocrisy of the ruler of the synagogue who had condemned Jesus for doing this quote-unquote work on the Sabbath and said in verse 15 that, that they didn't think it was wrong to work and care for their animals on the Sabbath, so, so how could it be wrong to care for this woman who was the daughter of Abraham, meaning, meaning what that meant was a child of God who is of more value to God than any animal. I don't care what the Humane Society says. 
Simply put, Jesus had rebuked this religious leader for his hypocrisy and said that he treated, he treated his animals better than he would be willing to treat this woman. Before I move on, I want to point out that just like, just like this religious leader who was in charge of the synagogue, guys, there are, there are a lot of people today who are really good at pointing out what is right and what is wrong and have no ability to see a need. May that not be us. May we not have the ability to point out what is right and wrong and be blind to the need that's before us. In fact, many people are blinded by a critical spirit, and that's what happens in those situations. We have a critical spirit, and we rarely see or take an opportunity to minister to anyone, yet God's desire clearly here is that we have eyes of compassion like Jesus so that we're able to see a need and then willing to do whatever it takes to meet that need. Remember, John, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says this. Listen, listen. It says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 18, it says, then, then he said, again, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew, and it became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in the branches. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until all was leaven. Now, right here we have additional parables, two real very short parables, um, uh, which is, with parables, again, just an earthly example that, can, that is, is used to convey or to, to, to reveal a spiritual truth, okay? And, and in these two short parables, what we know is that they have both been spoken, the ones that were spoken here to these people had been spoken previously to another crowd of people. Jesus, this isn't the first time that Jesus used these parables to, to, to teach. Here to the congregation of the synagogue, those who were in the synagogue and see what the religious leader had done, that's the context for it now. But according to Matthew chapter 13, he had previously spoken these parables to a great multitude of people who had lined the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That was the time when Jesus got in the boat and pushed off. Remember, and the crowds of people were there, and Jesus began to speak to them, a great multitude. And at that time, when it was all over, Jesus' disciples came and said, hey, Jesus, can you tell us what that means? Why do you speak in these parables now? And Jesus explained to his disciples exactly what these comparative illustrative pictures represented, what they meant. So we, didn't, we don't have to guess. And when we consider the first parable of the mustard seed, we need to understand, first of all, that a mustard seed does not, on its own, grow into a large tree. In fact, a mustard plant, mustard plants are very, very small shrubs that, that don't bring forth any fruit. Yet in this parable, the mustard seed had what we would call an unnatural growth. Perhaps even we might say when we look at it in regards to the kingdom of God, we see a supernatural growth. A supernatural growth 
But this created the supernatural growth. It created the opportunity for the birds to come and nest, is what we're being told. And we know from what Jesus had first, when Jesus had first taught these parables and explained them to his disciples that the birds are simply a, a symbol of evil. That's what we're told. And so the picture we're giving in this is that the kingdom of God can become a place where people who are evil can take up residence. Okay? And Jesus continued to make this point and continuing to make this point, he spoke the second parable about leaven or yeast that is put into a measure of dough. And when leaven is used, as you know, as an illustration of the Bible, by the way, it appears 98 times in Scripture. When leaven is used as an illustration, it's, it's 98 times, and in every instance, it's always an illustration of sin. So we have evil and we have sin in these parables. And we see that the, the, the point that Jesus is making is that within the kingdom of God, evil and or sin can make its way in. And if it's not dealt with, then it's going to spread and corrupt all that it comes in contact with. That's the simplicity of the message that we're receiving here. And this is pointed out, but here's the connection. This is pointed out for us on the heels of the religious leader of the synagogue who was, holding up, who was holding on to what? He was holding on to his did traditions and, and really opposing the, opposing the truth of God's word. And it's on the heels of this because of what we see with him because these two things is what was corrupting the kingdom of God. And it was corrupting the kingdom of God back then as Jesus pointed out and sadly these two things continue to corrupt the kingdom of God today. Opposition to the word of God and the traditions, the did traditions of men. And so when we think about that, we can and we should apply these truths that are being taught in these parables, not only to the time what Jesus was living, but today, to the church. Why? Because the church clearly is an extension of God's kingdom here on the earth. Now, we're told that. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we should apply this and look at this because these elements of this, of this parable, they accurately describe to us what has gone on and is going on in the church as so many of today's religious leaders have sought to hold on to not only did traditions, but they've also moved far away from teaching the truth of God's word. As a result, the church has become horribly mixed up with the world and there's this in ungodly um, um, integration between man and the church and the church and the world. As a result, it's hard to determine who is a Christian and who is not. You go around and ask people, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, why? I live in America. You know, that, not so much anymore, but I mean, there's, 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 there's it's, it's hard. It's hard to determine who is a Christian and who is not since there's no really distinction. Why is that? Because there's no real distinction often between the way people in the church are living their lives and the way that those in the world are living their lives. And this should not, this is not how it should be as Jesus made it clear that the citizens of his kingdom should stand out, that we should be separate, that we should not blend in that we should be different. And in doing so, what Jesus said specifically is that we should be salt and light to a lost and dying world. Remember in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how then shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled 
underfoot by men, you are the light of the world. A city on, on, set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're called to a higher standard, a higher way of life, a better way of life, to works of righteousness, to spiritual fruit. And in verses 22 through 33, we'll, we'll end with this. I'll read it. And it says, because then we're going to start talking about, Jesus start talking about the narrow way. And he says, as he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying where? Again, towards Jerusalem for this last trip with his disciples where he would eventually be arrested and crucified upon the cross, buried, and then rise again. It says, then one said to him, Lord, are there a few who are saved? And listen, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the, and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he will say, and, and he, will, he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I will tell you, I know, I do not, I do not know you where, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And on that very day, some Pharisee came saying to him, go out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform, and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to wrap it up with this, but in this last section of scripture, in this passage, we really see Jesus take this abstract question that's presented, are there a few who are saved? And he brings it again to this personal level. And this is, this is, this is because the, the important question really is not, are there a few who will be saved? The important question is, will I be among those who are saved? Is that not the important question? The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not everybody else's. Will I be among those who are saved? And as Jesus personalizes this, he responds in verse 24, and he says this first. Listen, what does he say? He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now, this word strive is the Greek word ag agonizimia, and, and it means to agonize like an athlete. That's what it means. And if you've ever, if you've ever, I'll just say this, if you've ever run, you know what this means. If, I, I hate running. And when, but I think I need to do it some reason. Or I, I work out with another guy here in the church, Mike Phillips, every once in a while. And if you work out with Mike, you'll know what it means to agonize like an athlete. 
But in light of this, we, we see that this word strive does not imply ultimately that we're saved by hard works, okay? I've got, I've got to work really hard to be saved. That's not what it's saying because we know that we're saved by grace when we trust in Jesus Christ, salvation in him alone. Rather, this admonition to strive like an athlete to enter in through the narrow gate is an intended to warn us so that we do not take an easy or a um, complacent attitude when it comes to the destiny of our soul. The most important thing. You know, when I was doing hospice chaplaincy for three years, I came across many people who come to the inner life that hadn't even considered, hadn't even considered what was next. They'd, they'd gone, they were considering it now, but they'd gone through all their whole life in some form or fashion and, 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 and never spent the time to really research, to, to dedicate themselves, to strive, to figure out what eternity was all about, how to get there, what, what, was, what was needed to, to end up in heaven, to have life after death. And it's a sad thing. And what Jesus is telling us is give attention to it. Don't complete, be complacent. Don't have that kind of attitude when it comes to the destiny of our soul, the most important thing that we can consider. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is first telling us to take our journey and our path into eternity seriously. Because if we fail to do so, we may find the door closed to God's heavenly kingdom. The, 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 we may find the door to God's heavenly kingdom closed to us. And as Jesus went on, we see that he gave several reasons for why, why a person may not be able to enter in through the doors of God's heavenly kingdom. Justin, if you guys want to come up, we're going we're to wrap it up with this. We're almost done. So we're going to close with these reasons. And the first reason is, de is depicted in verse 24 with this instruction to enter in through the narrow gate. And I think it helps for us to understand that, what he's, what he's saying. And we look at Jesus and what he said in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said this, verse 13 and 14. He said, enter by, by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Enter in through the narrow gate. Why? Because the wide gate is, is uh, the, the gate that is wide, the gate that is broad leads to destruction. And there are many who go by who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And the fact of the matter is, is there are not many ways to enter into the kingdom of God. People say, oh, there's many ways to God. No, there's not. There's not. It's the most loving thing we can tell people. There's not. There's only one way. And Jesus is the narrow gate by which we enter into salvation. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless they come to him, through him, by faith. Now, the other reason for why some will not enter in to, to God's heavenly kingdom and enter in through the door is according to verse 26, and we're told that it's because they have this false sense of security. That's what verse 36 is telling us. Meaning there are some who will claim to have even been in the presence of the Savior. But according to verse 27, we see that simply being around Jesus or, or, or knowing about Jesus is not enough. And this is because salvation requires a relationship with Jesus and where he knows us personally and we know him as the Lord, our Lord, our Savior, the only begotten Son of God. And a third reason that Jesus gave for this being kept out is, is, is ultimately revealed to us in verse 30 where we see that it's because of pride. And I think this is probably an underlying issue for everything, but Jesus singles it out here in verse 30, and it says, Indeed, 
there are, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Some people who think they're all that, right? Pride. There's this whole group of people who think that they should be first. In other words, they think that God's kingdom should be open to them because of who they are or, or because of what they have done on their own merit. And ultimately, the underlying reason given by Jesus, I think, in verse 34, um, is verse 34, Yes, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to hear, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but what? You were not willing. And ultimately, the ultimate reason given by Jesus for why a person will not be saved is because they are not willing. Guys, that's what it boils down to. Not willing. No man will stand before God on the day of judgment and go, I didn't know. I didn't understand. You didn't tell me. It will always be an issue of a free will choice. And so to answer the question, you know, why does God send people to hell? Why does God keep people out of heaven? He doesn't. People keep themselves by their own choices that they make here on this earth, going, I don't want to receive you as my Savior. I don't want to walk with you as my Lord in obedience to you, and therefore, I'm willingly choosing life apart from you. And life apart from God in eternity is hell. There's only two options, heaven and hell. And we must consider, we must strive, we must be serious in this life about where we're gonna go, how we're gonna get there, and take that and share it with those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you for these encouragements. Thank you for these warnings. Lord, thank you for speaking to our hearts individually and personally. And Lord, even in, in walking with you daily, Lord, we've received your son, Jesus, and we thank you for the gift of salvation that you brought us to this place where, where we've, we've, we've wanted to choose you. You've opened up our eyes where we've received you. But, Lord, I know that you call us to walk in willingness to the life that you've called us to, willing to obey you, willing to submit to you, willing to, to fall deeper in love with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that again today, seeing your goodness and your kindness, your mercy and your compassion, and how even though we don't deserve it, Lord, in this life, you've given us life and life abundantly, and you pour out so many good things upon us. Lord, may we praise you. May we rejoice always. May we give thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.